Let's stand to our feet and open up our text to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you're there, say, I'm there. Look and say, still looking. All right, I'll give you a second. And I'll go ahead and begin reading. And it's all, you can read with me, too, by the way. It's up on the screen. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to turn to the person to your left or to your right and help me announce this topic. Say neighbor. neighbor. The kingdom means the, kingdom the end, end of, egoism. of egoism. I notice some of y'all still looking and I want you to turn to the person around you, front, back, on the other side and say neighbor. neighbor. This, is the end this is the end of egoism. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. By the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness toward us. You are a good God. You are a faithful God. And we just thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy toward us. Now, Father, as we enter into this preaching moment, Lord, where you intersect the lives of your people with your word, I just ask, God, this burden's a little too heavy for me. And I just ask that you let me decrease, that you might increase, that uh, folk would see you and not me, that, that at the end of the day, uh, your son will be lifted up and people who don't know him will align themselves with him and people who have stepped out from him will realign themselves with him. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak today. Have your way in this place and do only what you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. It was in the shadows of Confucianism circa 300 BCE that a man by the name of Yang Zhu began to write on what would be called Yangism. And his teachings would be taught in what's called the School of Yang. At the core of Yang's teachings, he believed that man should not give care or concern about setting things right in this world. Many of us look at this world and see that it is awry, that it's not right, and many of us are idealistic, and we want to set things right in this world where Yang would say, it is a waste of your time to do that because at the moment that you begin to think about anyone else, you stop thinking about yourself. And it is the belief, it is this belief that philosophers like Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century and Anne Rand would later develop this into what's called ethical egoism. The term ethical egoism is a philosophical idea that argues that man's prime consideration should be himself over everyone else. Let me say that again. Man's primal consideration should be himself over 
anyone else. After all, you don't have to look too far to realize that they weren't tagging on anything new. They were actually drawing something from human nature. Many of us live our lives and can't nobody tell us nothing. We don't want to listen to what nobody got to say. We don't want to submit to nobody who we think or they think are better than us. We want to look out for ourselves. And this is not something that was created when Yang came around at circa 300 BCE, but this actually predates Yang and it goes back to the garden. It's an issue that every person, every human being, whether black, white, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, saved or unsaved, every person's prime consideration at one time or another is always me over you. But when we look at this thing called the kingdom, and what I love about the kingdom of Jesus is, is, is that Jesus talks about this kingdom and he never tells us literal stuff. Like he never says that the kingdom is going to have streets that go left and right and they're beautiful looking. He never says that there will be trees that are actually green with the skies that are going to be purple. He never, he never gives us any detail, but he gives us glimpses of what the kingdom looks like. And when he talks about the different things of what the kingdom looks like, one of the things that you will notice that is a constant theme as he's talking about the kingdom is humility and kingdom are oftentimes tied together. And so when we look at a glimpse into the kingdom, and this is the point that I believe that Matthew wants us to take home today. This is what we're taking home. This is the mental note that we're keeping, that when we get a glimpse into the kingdom of God, it reveals a people characterized by true humility. Let me say it again. When we take a glimpse, when we peel back the pages, we pull the layers of the onion back to get a glimpse of what the kingdom looks like, it reveals a people that is characterized by true humility. Now, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom, and he's beginning to talk here about it too as well. But in order for you to understand the significance of why he would even be talking about a kingdom, you'd have to understand something about history here. Let's talk about, let's call this the messianic expectation. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 15, God promised royal offspring from David to rule Solomon, to rule. And we would know that he's talking here specifically about Solomon. When you look at the history of the people of God, we know that the kingly line actually comes to an end. Why? Because people, the people of God, were disobedient to him, and he sent them into exile. Let me put a little bookmark or a little ribbon here in the text for a second and say this. Although we are saved by grace in Jesus Christ, although we have accepted the sacrifice that he's made for us, please don't for a second think that because the grace has been extended now, that sin can now abound over grace. That the same God who had an issue with his people sinning then is the same God who takes grief when you sin now. God is not sitting on the throne smiling at you every time you make a decision to do absent of what he told you to do. When you are saved by grace and you have accepted what Jesus Christ has done, there's actually a higher expectation for you, not a lesser expectation. So understand that God is a God who deals with sin. The only difference is that it ain't, it's been dealt with eternally for you if you're a believer, but don't let God have to get the belt out and take care of you. So we see here in the history here, that God began to talk to them about a Messiah who would come. You look at Isaiah, and Isaiah would say that a, a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse, and he will rule, and the Spirit of God will rest on him, and the kingdom will be one of peace. That's a paraphrase here. Jeremiah would say that the Lord will raise up for David's a righteous branch. And so these people waited for someone who would come from the line of David to free them from their oppressors. So they waited under the Babylonians. He didn't come. 
They waited under the Persians. He didn't come. They waited under the Greeks and he didn't come, and now they're waiting under the Romans, and he has finally come. That's why you see John coming out, creaming out in the, in, the, in the desert saying, repent because the kingdom is at hand. The very first sermon you hear Jesus preaching ain't start off talking nothing about no Yang Zoo or nothing like that. It was repent because the kingdom of God is here. And over time, Jesus began to reveal more and more about who he was. He was fulfilling the things of the prophet. I love that Matthew takes a great deal here to connect Jesus back to David. That genealogy that most of us sleep on is not just something to bore us and put us to sleep, but that genealogy that we're reading is something that Matthew is saying that, that God has actually fulfilled his promise because now he's brought a ruler who comes from David. Let me just put a little mark here for a second and understand that God is a God who fulfills promises. Unlike you and me who lie and break our word every single day, every promise that God makes, he's more than able to back it up. He don't need you to manufacture it. He don't need you to make it happen, but he will keep his promises. And so you have Jesus here, and he's talking about the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is a few chapters previous, you see Jesus taking his boys, Peter, James, and John, onto the mountain. And on that mountain, he comes, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. Now, those three, just imagine, they're standing back, and they're looking like, is that Moses? I've heard stories about that guy, but I'm not going to interrupt their conversation. And just as they're kind of like, man, look at this. God speaks and it humbles them. And God says, this is my son. Pay attention to him. I can see the three walking off the mountain with Jesus like, yeah, we that stuff. We kind of got it a little bit now. Those other those other nine ain't got it like us. But but Jesus has shown us. Don't you just hate when people tell you things that God has done as if it was about them and not about his grace? Isn't that strange how we sometimes can flip that? script a bit and talk about in the name of telling a testimony of what God has done, but we can make it sound like it's really about the faith that we had or something that was inherent in us that made God be kind to us. Well, no, because we all stand on the same level. So they began to argue according to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 tells us that they were fighting on their way to where they're going. And on their way fighting, (laughs) they began to ask Jesus the question, who is greatest in the kingdom? See, what, what the Matthew is trying to show us here is that, is that and, and Mark does a great job with it, is that there was jealousy in the heart of the people because of what God had done for three that he didn't do for nine. Let me drive down your street and park in front of your house for a second. Have you ever been at a place where you've prayed from things from God and you've seen God not answer you, but yet he answers someone else who actually seems worse than you? Peter was a cusser and he had a temper. Why would God show him this and not you? Have you ever prayed for elevation or for God to do something in your life and it seems like he just leaves you sitting, but yet he does it for everyone else? Does it ever evoke in you a sense of jealousy or Maybe I'm the only one in here that's not saved enough to be honest about the fact that I've been jealous at brothers and sisters in Christ and the things that God has done for them. They began to get jealous. And Jesus addresses them in the most interesting way. He doesn't come like we would come like, hey, you know what? It's going to be all right. You're going to be elevated one day. He deals with them at their very core. So I said here that there was a point that he's making here. And that point is a glimpse into the kingdom shows us a people characterized by true humility. There are two statements here that Jesus is using to substantiate that. And the first statement is this, and we find it in our text. Go to verse 3. It says, truly 
I say to you, anytime you see truly, truly mean pay a doggone attention to what you're about to hear. Don't, don't, don't go to sleep on me now. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn. Now, what's interesting about this word turn, turn is not metanoia. Metanoia is the word that we get repentance from. Repentance is that deep sense of guilt that causes you to change your attitude. The word here is strepho, which means to change. See, sometimes we feel a need of repentance, but it doesn't necessarily hit the outflow and make us actually change. We know some things about God. We study some stuff about him. We read the scriptures about him. But if what you know in your head does not just stops at an attitude change, but doesn't actually change your life, then you're missing the whole point of strepho. Jesus says, unless you turn or change, but even that idea of strepho, it's a passive verb, which means it's not something that you even have the power to do in and of yourself. It's where we get this idea of conversion. He says, unless you are turned or reoriented or changed to become like children. Now, some of y'all, I lost you already because your kids are bad. If <laughs> Truth be told, you know your kids are crazy and you scared of them right now, just like I'm scared of my kids. But here, let's, let's, look at this, let's look at this idea here. In the American understanding of children, we have a very high view of children. We have whole markets that are centered around children. We say that if you want to be a good parent that treats your kid right, spend a million and a half dollars on a bassinet that they'll only sleep in for three months. Versus doing what your grandmama and them did in the South and put your butt in a drawer. Now, some of y'all are like, they actually put babies in drawers. That sounds a bit child abuse here. But this idea here that Jesus is coming at is the fact that children in his day and his time actually lacked significance. They lacked importance. And it was because of sheer stature. They could not reach the cookie jar to get cookies. Some of y'all kids find ways to climb chairs to get cookies and then lie about it. But they could not reach the top to get cookies. They could not provide for themselves. They could not protect themselves. So they needed someone to help them so that they would not be self-sufficient. Here's what Jesus is saying. Unless you are turned or transformed and changed to the point of dependence like a child on God through Jesus Christ, the kingdom is something you will never see. If you don't ever come to a point in your life where Jesus is actually the true center and not the peripheral, then you may need to ask the question, do I really know him? Because Jesus says that unless you submit yourself to God through him, the kingdom will be foreign to you. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Don't mean that you got it all together. In fact, quite the opposite. That's why John tells us that when we sin, we got an advocate. Is there anybody in here that's excited about an advocate who speaks on your behalf when you're too weak to speak for yourself? Jesus says, unless you turn or are changed to become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. I wish you saw it in the Greek because the idea is that it's absolutely impossible for you to come into the kingdom. See, God has always been opposed to the proud. That ain't a new thing. That ain't a new thing. Many of us come to God and we're holding out on God because we actually think a little bit higher of ourselves than we really are. 
because we got a little bit of education. We got a little bit of money or we done been up in a church and know some Bible verses. But, but if you ain't never humbled yourself to Jesus Christ, I don't care what you know, whose water was thrown on you or whose water you went down in. If you have never submitted to the person of Jesus Christ, heaven is far from you. Now, what's so beautiful about this here is, is you, we, you look at this context, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's not assuming that they don't know him. Keep in mind, these are the very people that he hand-selected, not took by referral, but hand-selected. These are the people that he was training to teach the gospel for us, to know him. Here's what he's saying here. That the same humility that you had when you followed me is the value and importance of humility that you need to have even though you're still in me. I remember when I was a shorty in Chicago, yes, I am a south side of Chicago boy. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan and I'm proud of it. Not a Cubs fan, but a Sox one. <laughs> but anyway, I remember growing up on the south side of Chicago and my daddy was teaching me how to ride a bike. I remember, you know, you was doing it when you had a bike and you had them training wheels and you could like hold yourself up, but you were like exponentially doing it when you took your training wheels off. So my daddy was taking the training wheels off and he was teaching me how to ride and he said, son, now this is how we're going to do it. And I remember your parents ever walked alongside of you while you're riding that bike. And I remember we were going down the street and I saw some girls on the porch. Oh yeah, you know when you see them girls on the porch, you got to get it together. Can't you ha can't have your parent holding your hand there. You got you to gotta straighten up and fly right. I said, daddy. Get your hands off the handlebars, man, I got this. And it didn't take me too long to get to a point where I realized I never learned how to balance myself without my daddy's help. Here it is. Some of us are busy slapping Jesus' hands off the handlebars of our life. There are many of us that are sitting here today that have been saved by Jesus Christ, and yet we're slapping his hands off, saying, Jesus, I got this. I can control my destiny. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And some of us are broken because we slap Jesus' hands off the bicycle far too much. We never learn to actually stand on his help. And Jesus is saying to us as believers, because this reminder for us is saying, hey, although you got it, stay humble under the mighty hand of God. That humble under a mighty hand of God is a salvific idea. The strong hand of God that delivers, stay humble to it. And many of us are slapping his hand, say, I got this. Jesus, you ain't moved fast enough for me to get a spouse, so I'm going to get this. Jesus, you ain't moved fast enough for me to get some money, so I'm going to get this. And Jesus is saying, smack the hands all you want to, but you need to humble yourself. So it's really interesting here that this first piece of humility is about man and God. But the second statement that he makes is a humility that deals with people. Let's look at verse four. Verse four says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Look this way. I can see the disciples sitting in a semicircle as they've now brought a kid in the room. Not a teenager, but a kid. And he's saying, anybody who humbles himself like this shorty here. That's the actual great one. What's interesting here is Jesus makes a paradoxical statement that makes absolutely no sense. In what world is the least actually great? 
I remember when I was a kid and, and in the 90s, you always wanted to have a piece of jewelry to go with your outfit. Y'all remember Diddy used to be walking around with that big old fake necklace on? Well, it's probably real in real life. But if you were like me and you grew up and you ain't had no money, you wanted a necklace, you went to the famous jewelry store, not the Pagata in the mall, not some other jewelry, you went to the beauty supply house. Uh-huh. I ain't the only one by myself up in here. You went to the beauty supply house and you walked past and you saw your little fake bling and earrings and you saw your little fake bracelet and watch and you said, I'll take that there for $15. <laughs> and what that was, was generally a piece of plastic that was dipped in chrome to look better than what it really was. The statement that Jesus is making is saying that it's like that, that chrome piece that ain't even real has more value than something you get at Tiffany's. He's saying that this thing that is inherently less than in the kingdom is actually greater. Jesus is pulling on a radical understanding of the kingdom that operates completely contrary to how we do things. Because in our minds, we say, if I want to get ahead, I'll mess you up to get ahead. But in the kingdom, Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's the same kingdom principle that says that wives submit to your husbands. Now, I know some of y'all about to get up and walk out the room on that one. But, but then he takes it a step further. He says, but husbands, love your wives, not just as she submits, but love her as Christ loved the church in how he gave his life for her. He'll say, he'll say, he'll say, kids, obey your parents. And some of y'all, y'all got your kids know that by heart. But he'll say, parents, don't provoke your child to wrath. Jesus has a way in the kingdom of taking people that are actually higher and bringing them down lower. See, Jesus says here that the man who humbles himself. Now, humble himself is not self uh, uh, depreciation. It's not low self-esteem, but humble yourself means you make yourself lesser. It means your prestige that you really don't have, it ain't stuck on your head because you see yourself as equal to others. We can't grasp true humility until we understand true grace. Oh, for the grace of God to trust him more. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you would not be saved. When we truly understand the grace of God, we understand just how jacked up we are. But it's amazing how people who profess to know Jesus Christ will pride arrogance as if it is something that God has given us. When God says that the one who humbles himself or makes himself less than is actually great in his eyes. There are many of us that are some arrogant folk up in here. I know I struggle with it too. There are many of us that think more highly of ourselves and we treat people like that. We make folk jump through hoops to actually get with us. We make people jump through hoops to prove themselves of why they're worthy of our forgiveness. When we don't understand grace, we will not understand true humility. And Jesus says that the one who humbles himself makes himself nothing. That's the greatest in the kingdom. That's how he can say if somebody smacks you, turn the other cheek. Because the one who humbles himself ain't the, is the greatest in the kingdom. 
It's amazing how we sometimes part ways with other believers that differ with us, not on central stuff like Jesus and the Bible, but on peripheral things. And we will deal with people as if they are completely wrong when Jesus says humble. Some of us enter into debate sometimes, and it ain't never to straighten nobody. It's sometimes to prove that we got the muscle. When Jesus says humble. Some of us will treat our wives like crap up at home as if we really got it. But Jesus says, humble. Some of us on our jobs treat our co-workers like they're pawns to be stepped on. But Jesus says, humble. But what I love about this is that Jesus never tells us to do something that he himself is incapable of doing. Some of us will never listen to a person that will tell us to do something and they themselves won't do it. Don't you just hate when your mama used to tell you to go take out the garbage and you knew she wasn't going to ever get up and do it? But Jesus tells them to do something that he himself is about to do. He says, no servant is greater than his master, which implies that the master is about to do something that the servants ought to follow him in. I love how Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think the way he thought. The attitude that he had, let that same attitude be in you. I love what Isaiah calls Jesus. He says he is the prince of peace. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. And this God, who, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't see it as a thing to be grasped. In other words, he had every right to see himself is more important than he really was but yet he didn't hold on to it there are many of us who are too high on ourselves and we won't let it go but he said that he didn't see that as a thing to be grasped but what does Paul say Paul says but rather he humbled himself he poured himself out don't get stuck on what he poured out but think about what he poured himself into he took on a leather bodysuit and he poured himself into humanity and he made himself humble under God listen to this some of us are humble temporarily we'll be humble as long as it benefits us we'll be humble as long as we can shout about it in church we'll be humble as long as our prayer lives are pristine we'll be humble as long as it feels good but but that ain't what the master did the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself for obeyed unto the point of death. Let's talk about that death. The Bible says in Isaiah that he was pierced for our transgression and he was abused for a, a bruise for our iniquity and the chastisement that brought us peace was placed on his back. Let's talk about Jesus on that cross, that old rugged cross where the blood began to pour and not the blood that, that you just talk about, but the blood that actually cleanses you, the blood that gives you access to the Father, the blood that washes your conscience clean. Is there anybody here that's grateful for the blood who knows that if if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, you'd be lost. If it weren't for the blood of Jesus, you'd be on your way to a devil's hell. He says, he humbled himself even to the point of death and death on the cross. The scriptures tell us that he was afflicted and oppressed and yet he did not utter a word. Some of us wouldn't let nobody beat us for nothing, but he took a beating for us in that type of humility. He made himself lesser, although he was God in the flesh. And the Bible says that as a result of it, he was given a name 
Oh, let's talk about that name here, that wonderful name, Jesus. Folk may shudder at your name in your house. That's if your kids obey you. Your name might actually get somebody into a club downtown. That's if your name actually means something. But the Bible says that he was given a name that is above every name. This is the name Jesus that saves you. This is the name Jesus that you call on when you're lonely. This is the name Jesus that's stronger than a doctor in a sick room. This is the name Jesus that has all power. Is there anybody here that knows about the name Jesus? He says he was given a name that's above every name. I love it because even though he died, he got up. Oh, yes, he did. He didn't stay dead, but he got up. And the Bible says that he was given a name above every name that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow. There are knees that have bowed now. Some of you have gotten saved and accepted Jesus Christ, and your knees have bowed. There are some of you that are holding off to whenever, whenever will be. But Jesus, the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess, which means that you will bow and confess either by will or you will bow and confess by force. That name, Jesus, was elevated above our names. I love that he is our example. That Jesus will never tell us to do something that he can't do, that he won't do. The next time we're wondering, should we serve somebody? Should we speak to somebody? Should we be kind to somebody when you don't feel about it? Think about the cost of the cross and what it took for you to be saved and how it took Jesus to make himself lesser so that you can actually have access to the Father. Think about what it costs the cross. I love that he's our example. When we struggle with forgiving people, think about how much we bruise him now. Let's just be honest for a minute. You know the stuff that's in your heart right now. You know the person you cussed out just three days ago. You know the sin that you're planning to do when you go home and, and think about what he did for you. But yet we oftentimes process the need to forgive. Now, I ain't knocking that somebody might be on the path of forgiveness, but, but sometimes I've been guilty of using the excuse. I ain't there yet. And I haven't even acknowledged the fact that I need to forgive. I ain't there yet. Next time we struggle with, should we lesser ourselves? Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. The thing that he wants us to take home today is this. A glimpse into the kingdom of God reveals a people that are truly humble. Not humble in a humanitarian sense, because even in that humility, you're still doing it to feel fulfilled or to feel good. But humble under the mighty hand of God. Humble to God through the avenue that he's provided through Jesus Christ. But that humility should transcend you and God, but it now should become horizontal. Don't look at someone next to you or someone you drive behind or someone you walk past as less than you because it's the grace of God. We are saved by grace. Ain't nothing in us that makes us saved. Ain't nothing in us that makes us worthy of it. So if we ain't worthy of it, you ain't worthy of it, he ain't worthy of it, she ain't worthy of it, then we sit on the same field here. It's the humility that we have in our hearts towards other people that should prompt us and lead us to tell folks about Jesus. Because we understand how lost we were. 
And we want the lost to know Christ. And that humility should drive us to tell folks. Humility.